0: Please do turn with me to Mark and Chapter 10. Mark Chapter 10, as you turn there, I just want to put into context what has already taken place. I am speaking on the theme of uh, humility as the path to ministerial success. And while doing so, I've already revealed the the real title to this series. And the actual real title to the series is Pride Comes Before a Fall. Mm-hmm. Now, I realize that if uh, you use that as publicity for a conference, you probably will have half the attendance you want <laughs> to see present. <laughs> so I, I made it more positive <laughs> and so called it humility, the path to ministerial success. And in doing so, I thought of using uh, Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 35 to verse 45, as the passage from which I would draw six messages. Three of them were handled yesterday, and the other three are being handled uh, today. So yesterday, we Um, appreciated the context in which this passage is found, and it's evident there that the Lord was dealing with quite a number of uh, pride issues that were there in the lives of the um, believers, the, the disciples that were following him. And you can't miss it from chapter 9 and verse 33 when the Lord asked his disciples, what were you discussing on the way? And they were mute. They obviously knew it was rather embarrassing for them to say what they were talking about. But finally, we are told there um, that on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So that's the kind of issue that the Lord Jesus Christ in due season deals with when James and John come to him to make a request that when he comes in his glory, that there would be one on the left and one on the right. We went on then to see that this passage that we are looking at divides itself nicely into two sections. The first is where the Lord is speaking primarily to James and John, correcting something of their thinking. And then in the second, he is addressing all of them collectively because of the reaction that the others give when they hear about their two friends sneaking in a request to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are upset And if we're to sort of picture an environment of rowdy guys, he has to separate them and say, now, hang on, guys. I think you're getting this completely wrong. So it's the first part that we really dealt with yesterday. And first of all, we noticed how our fallen nature craves honor and distinctiveness and And greatness and so on. And we saw this from the request that was given in verse 35 to verse 37. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So we saw how our fallenness is often craving for such distinction. But we also went on to see how our fallen nature idolizes our own ability. And that we saw from verse 38 and the way in which these disciples answer in verse 39. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to baptize with the baptism with which I am baptized? And this is the way they answer. They said to him, we are able. Now, that's a moving kind of answer. That uh, people who are obviously blind would be giving. Mm-hmm. And you said, I gave the example of perhaps your son coming to you and saying that he would like to become a pastor. And you've been perhaps in the pastorate 20, 30, 40 years. You know that this is not a place individuals go to have a party. Mm-hmm. And so, as you start sharing with this young person, what he demands to be in pastoral ministry. He says to you, Dad, don't worry. I'm able to do that. <laughs> Immediately, you know that disqualifies him completely. But that's really what was happening here. But then thirdly, and lastly, in our session, our third session yesterday, we saw in verse 39 to verse 40 how honor and greatness is really a gift of God's sovereignty. It's not something that we earn in any way by any form of grit and force in our personality. God gives it as he pleases. The Lord puts it that clearly when he says halfway through verse 39, and Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, You will be baptized, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And we noted that from uh, Matthew 20, which is the parallel passage, Matthew records, for whom it has been prepared by my Father, meaning really Um, ultimately. It is referring to the predestination that takes place all before uh, history begins to roll on. It is what God has predetermined. And we opened all that up last night. Well, this morning we are turning into this second part in which our Savior is now going to respond to Uh, the way in which the others now deal with this matter. We read in verse 41, And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And the title of my message is, History is Marred by Egotistic Battles. And that's what you are seeing in this text, as uh, the others hear what has gone on behind the scenes, and they say, how could you, and move in with their fallen attitude. What is it that we learn from this verse when the other ten hear about this and get angry? Well, first of all, it is simply the fact that pride destroys relationships. Pride destroys relationships. First of all, these two, when they went behind their friends to go and whisper to the Lord Jesus Christ, to squeeze in their request, they were doing it knowing very well that if this matter was to be in the public, their friends would really be angry with them. So they were hoping that they would get a yes answer before their friends find out. Because by that time, they've secured their position. It doesn't matter how you feel about it after that. In other words, they treasured the position of honor above their interpersonal relationships. And that's what pride does. It sacrifices the relationships that ought to cement our community, our society, our fellowship on the altar of this ego trip. But also the opposite is equally true. Those who discover this end up with hurt pride. And they also say, I'm coming in for the kill. So in the end, we have a society, a community, a church that's going up in flames because of pride. You have on the one hand, the individuals who are, yes, making it in life, perhaps as we saw yesterday, because of the gifts that God has given them, they are standing head and shoulders above their fellows, and those that are not there, instead of rejoicing with them, they are filled with envy, they are filled with jealousy, And in the process, they are seeking to pull down the other person instead of rejoicing with them. So, even where it is legitimate, where really we ought to be saying, thank God for the gifts that God has given us in this brother and in this sister, pride fails to rejoice in that. And instead, goes in for the kill. And that's history. Think with me for a moment concerning the first murder that took place in history. When Cain murdered his own blood brother, Abel. What did Abel do to him? Nothing. Except that God accepted his sacrifice. And Cain could not stomach it. And in the process, he killed him. Think of Joseph being sold as a slave into Egypt. What exactly did Joseph do against his brothers? Well, okay, he was a bit ill-advised in going to them to say, you know, you guys will be kneeling before me before long. He should have known human nature by that time. But really, strictly speaking, you don't mind a dreamer in your midst whose thinking is the greatest thing that hit this planet since Adam and Eve. You don't mind that. But in this particular case, let's get rid of this dreamer. And in the process, they sold their brother into slavery in Egypt. Think also of the way in which King Saul lost direction completely in his rule over uh, uh, the the nation of Israel. Taking an entire army to seek one life, and that was the life of David. For what? Here was this youngster who was basically saying, in the way he understood it, uh, that the Lord was preparing him to be the next king. But again, Saul could not have it, and in the process, destroyed his own life. Let's jump over into the New Testament. Think of the predecessor of uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, John the Baptist. Why did he end up dying the way he did? Well, again, it was really a, a ruler who in the midst of his excitement makes a promise to his his adopted daughter and discovering too late that the request that is now being made is the head of God's prophet. And instead of swallowing the pride and saying, well, look, okay, I, I think I got a bit giddy from the wine and your dancing, I shouldn't have made the promise, I did, pride won the day, and the head of an innocent servant of God was brought in. Now, if we're busy right now with self-righteousness, pointing fingers at all these biblical stories, think of the many fights that are there in the church. Those occasions when individuals, um, to use a, a Chinese proverb, um, kill a fly on a friend's forehead using a 10-pound hammer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we all know it's not the fly, it's the ego that cannot stand whatever it is going, whatever is going on. The indignation that is coloring everything is beyond the actual issue at hand. It is hurt pride. It is pride that must finally win and so on. We'll come to that in a moment. But all I'm saying is that's our history. That's our history. And it's so sad when you are in leadership. And your entire eldership is going up in flames. You are failing to get people who are supposed to be Christians to simply be Christians. They have heard and they have become indignant. In this particular case, it was with James and John. Let's face it. The primary issue that we are dealing with is simply the absence of humility. That's all. The absence of humility. It's it's the ego, the, the I that must be first that brings about all this. Others must save my end. And that is completely wrong. In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, writing to the believers in this city in chapter 4, puts it this way, and is talking there about the only way in which we can have the church of our Lord Jesus Christ going forward in genuine humility, rather genuine unity, and it is only where there is humility, humility. Chapter 4, the first three chapters of this letter are full of uh, the unsearchable riches of Christ, the way in which he brings us to himself, as individuals, the way in which he brings us together in chapter 2 as a Christian church and the fruit of all that as the Apostle Paul prays that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. And as he opens up chapter 4, this is the way he puts it. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And the very first issue he presents is this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, if these men that were around the Lord Jesus Christ had responded this way to one another, that disruptive anger would not have been there if there was but humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another and this Eagerness to to function together. You wouldn't have had Jesus saying, "Hey guys, hang on, hang on, let let's think afresh concerning service in the Christian faith." Or, as the Apostle Paul puts it, in the next letter to the Philippians, um, before he deals with the example of our Lord. In Philippians chapter 2, I'm primarily interested in just verse 3 there. Philippians 2 and verse 3. He says there, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That's exactly what's happening right now in Acts chapter 10. They are doing everything out of selfish ambition and conceit or pride. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. We'll come and look at that a little more uh, under my next point. But it's it's this self-centeredness, this I must have my own way, this this is mine. Those of you who are parents, I'm sure you've you've gone through this with your kids. And if they've now grown up and you remind them about it, they're often very embarrassed. And it's the fact that, you know, you buy them a toy from your visit in America, like it is with me now. You know, you sort of give them the toy and they really enjoy the toy for a very short time. Before long, they're not interested in it. And then a cousin comes visiting. And that cousin tries to play with it. Wow! (laughs) Your child goes, grabs the toy from the friend, and wants to go and start playing with what, at one time, there was no interest. So you try to come in and say, now, come on. Your friend's just visiting for the day. Let them, no, it's mine, it's mine. Okay, but just yesterday, I was trying to convince you to, to play with your toy, and you were not interested. No, it's mine, and quickly takes it into the bedroom, hides it under the bed or wherever it might be. Now, yeah, that's a teaching point for your child but it's it's uh, it's heartbreaking when adults function like that when they are willing to destroy relationships based on either this is mine or this is going to be mine mm-hmm. and nobody is going to disturb that whatsoever And any elder knows when a marriage in the church is being destroyed by that I that is in the middle of the word sin, that I. You've listened, you've tried to counsel, and it's fairly evident that this person is irreconcilable because of me. I must have my own way. This person must listen to me or else they are out of here. I have had a raw deal over this. How could he or she have said that to me? Me? And as much as you may try to counsel the person, it's like this little idol must still win the day. Any elder knows when an entire church is being rocked by this I factor. This I factor. There are times when you you just wish you wouldn't have church business meetings because these two brethren are on each other's throats. The moment one says white, you know exactly that 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 person will say black. Mm -hmm. You know it. Mm -hmm. And an entire meeting grinds to a halt. Because of this. But what is worse, brethren, is when church leaders, elders, are the ones who are guilty of this. Because that's supposed to be the cream of the crop. As far as spiritual maturity is concerned. But it can be the worst of situations in the life of the church. Churches, entire churches, are split, not over heresy, not over gross immorality, but because individuals are failing to get along because of the ego. The pride, the I in the middle of the S. And you even hear words being thrown across the room, like, I don't care if you don't like it or not. I don't care. You don't care. In other words, you're basically saying, you know, get out of here. We'll be pretty happy without you. It's all the ego. Love goes out through the window. I must win. That's the situation that our Lord was dealing with here in this text. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And our Lord knew that it's this same fallenness that characterizes the world out there. And hence, he speaks in words that we'll come and look at in the next section he says this, James, rather, Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. The main point there is that they use those who are under them for their own end. The ego trip is what they are all about. And really, Jesus is saying, it must not be so with you. We will wait until then. But what is it really that is the answer to all this? What is it? May I suggest to you that it's the humility that we were looking at together, especially in last evening's session where we're talking about greatness being the gift of God. We're seeing that ultimately it's, it's when we learn to be true worshippers of the living God, when we recognize that this God of glory is the one who makes us as we are, giving us the various gifts that we have, and he may have gifted your brother or your sister far beyond the gifts that he has given you. It is this great God who brings us into the tapestry of history at the time that he brings us in to play the role that he wants us to play. And some will play a very decisive role in the outworking of that history, while others will still play their role according to God, but hardly noticed by anybody. It is God who is in charge of history. He deals with each one of us as he is pleased, honoring one, bringing down another. Now, Genuine humility recognizes that fact. Genuine humility is one that acknowledges that fact that this God is the one who is in charge of all. And that is why it is the secret or the path to ministerial success. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. In Colossians chapter 3, Colossians 3 and verse 12. So we've peeped at Ephesians, we've peeped at Philippians, we are now peeping at Colossians. Colossians 3. And what I want you to do is, is just to, to, to smell the atmosphere of this text And imagine it being true in the context of your home, in the context of uh, the church, in the context of your leadership. Imagine this. Or imagine this being true among the disciples at the point that they were about to jump on each other's throats. Listen to this. Verse 12. Put on then, And then he mentions who they are with respect to God, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So the first thing is to recognize who are we before this God, uh, my heavenly Father, who controls all history? Who am I? Chosen from eternity, set apart, for God's own use and loved with everlasting love. He says in the light of that, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, which is what was happening in our text, look at what he says. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And then he says, and above all this, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What a difference. That's the way the Christian church should be. That's the way Christian marriage should be. That's the atmosphere, the ambience that we ought to to smell, the aroma within our elderships. True humility, then, comes from a sweet resignation to the sovereignty of my heavenly father that now simply concentrates on serving him faithfully. That's it. That's my business. He's loved me. I want to love him back. If he doesn't give me that opportunity, that privilege, that honor, that greatness, so be it. He's sovereign, he's my father, my business is to serve him faithfully, to love him back. Now if these disciples had believed what Jesus said in the previous verse, that look, it's it's, it's not me simply granting this to you because you've asked me. It is something that is already predetermined by God the Father from all eternity. If they had really believed this, what they should have done is walked into that room, looked at James and John, and just laughed at them. <laughs> and you thought you could get that, did you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But they didn't. There have been individuals in the Bible who did. And let's look at a few of them. One of them is is Joseph and his brothers. They had sold him off into Egypt. He had suffered many years. He was now the second greatest in the land. And guess what happened? His brothers showed up right in front of him. Yeah. If Joseph did not believe in God's sovereignty, those guys would have paid dearly for it. Mm -hmm. Dearly. But when they came with... Some little story about you know before dad died, this is what he said. You know, for uh, forgive your brothers. Joseph said, no, 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 no. Am I in the place of God? Mm. I'm not. This was God's predetermined will. Yes, you meant it for evil, but He meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. So I'm not here in an ego contest, no. I've got a job to do. It is to serve God's eternal purpose. Let's look at another. David, a fugitive, running for his life. And on a number of occasions, having the opportunity to kill Saul. He doesn't do it. And yet, he's a hunted man. He still doesn't do it. Why not? He says, Touch not the Lord's anointed. I shouldn't take the law into my own hands. If it's God, who has anointed me for that position, God will bring me there. Mm -hmm. It's not my job to start engineering history. No, I'm not going to do it. He was a true worshiper of our Lord. We will soon be looking at the example of Christ this evening. But before we even get there, Jesus is rushed to the cross. by Pilate, by the Sanhedrin. And even as he's hanging there, individuals are mocking him. What's his attitude? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's there recognizing this is the Father's will. He had wrestled with the Father in Gethsemane. And the Father had but sent an angel to strengthen him the last mile of the way. Closed in with God the Father. He was not at the mercy of hitting out upon his enemies. He felt sorry for them. He prayed for them instead is this true humility that we need if our churches and our elderships and our families are not be marred by these egotistic battles we need genuine humility god centered humility a humility that recognizes God's sovereignty that this is my father who loves me, who has ordained history this way, there's no need for me to enter this egotistic fighting taking place. Now if you are a leader, One of the things that's going to happen to you is you are going to be a target of a lot of malicious attacks. I wish I would say it's only from outside your church. I wish I would say that. It's going to happen from the very people for whom you are spending and being spent. They will attack you viciously and maliciously. If you don't have this humility I'm talking about here, that recognizes that this is about God, His honor, His glory, His sovereignty, you will soon be hitting back. And that often spells the end of your ministry. When you now also fold your sleeves and say, who do you think you are? And you jump in there. And especially in today's social media world, people find it very easy to throw a lot of stuff at you. Stinking stuff. And you feel like saying, okay, let me reply to this. And you also start typing. Throw your stuff back. And before long, the whole place is a mess. A mess. Jesus, his honor and his glory really has been set aside. It's now brutish anger that is taking place in the name of the Christian faith. I'm saying that ought not to be. May God save us from what was about to happen here. When the ten headed, they began to be indignant at James and John. So let me quickly put it this way. Is your church marred by infighting? Is your leadership marred by infighting? Or let me ask a further question. Are you the cause or the cure? Are you somebody who's adding to the mess? Or are you somebody whose example is pointing in a different direction? Recognize that it is the pride that comes before a fall that is often the issue there. Blessed is that church that has a pastor who is a true peacemaker. Who's not in it that I might finally come out as victor, but who's seeking the will of God, the owner of God, and is submissive to that will with a sweet, sweet submission. As we shall be seeing later, we have a good example in the person of Christ. May we follow in his footsteps. May we. And may I add, we can follow in his footsteps because his spirit is in us, dwelling within us, convicting us, of those actions that we are often engaged in that are primarily about the ego. And taking us to the foot of the cross to say, Lord, forgive me. That was unkind. It's inexcusable. Forgive me. And going even to agitators and saying to them, Forgive me for the way I answered you. May God help us to not be part of these egotistic battles that have marred human history, marred our churches, and marred our families and marriages. Amen.